Take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 6. 1 Samuel chapter 6 will continue the alternate course of our study series here on Sunday mornings. As Pastor Scott is taking us through the book of Galatians, uh, the other pastors are going through the book of 1 Samuel. And so after a few weeks in Galatians, we go back and Lord willing, next Sunday, uh, Pastor Charlie will also be speaking. The message today is, from my perspective, a very heavy one. Uh, if you are able to listen and to pray simultaneously, I encourage you to do so for me. As I have had several weeks to look over this passage and to consider what I think the practical applications are for us as God's people. I'm overwhelmed. I'm overwhelmed by the, the lack in my own life. And I'm concerned about the church in general. And so as we consider the book of 1 Samuel, it's, it's something that's very difficult for us to relate to, the, the time period being so far back and the culture being so different than what we are in the midst of in our own life it's it's oftentimes it, it seems like we're almost in an indiana jones movie to be quite honest where supernatural things happen that you're not expecting and uh, and different adventurous things that you, know, you just you would never be a particular part of as an individual you just don't have those opportunities when we consider these types of things we need to remember that the things that were written in former times were written for our instruction that through endurance and through encouragement of the scriptures, we may have hope. So no matter what our perspective is and no matter how we look and, and, and study and, and glean from these Old Testament passages and particularly from the ones today, we hopefully will be looking for hope. Hope in what? Well, our hope, as Paul tells us, in, as he relates it to Titus, our hope is the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. The one who died for us, the one who is coming back to reign. That is our hope. So even when we look at 1 Samuel chapter 6, we're looking for instruction. We're looking for something that will encourage us to hope in that day. Before we're finished, we'll, we're also going to take a little bit of a look and see what the writer of Hebrews might be able to help us with in regards to that hope. But we have to start here in 1 Samuel chapter 6. Let's begin our reading in verse 1. As we read our passage, go back for a little review and look for the Holy Spirit to have his way in our hearts as he applies his word to us today. 1 Samuel chapter 6, verse 1, the ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines seven months. And the Philistines called for the priests and the diviners and said, what shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us what we, sh or what we shall send it to its place. They said, if you send away the ark of God of Israel, do not send it empty. But by all means, return him a guilt offering. Then you will be healed. And it will be known to you why his hand does not turn away from you. 
And they said, what is the guilt offering that we shall return to him? They answered, five golden tumors and five golden mice, according to the number of the lords of the Philistines, for the same plague was on all of you and on your lords. So you must make images of your tumors and images of your mice that ravage the land and give glory to the God of Israel. Perhaps he will lighten his hand from you and your gods and your land. Why should you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts? After he had dealt severely with them, did they not send the people away and they departed? Now then, take and prepare a new cart and two milk cows on which there has never come a yoke and yoke the cows to the cart, but take the calves home away from them. And take the ark of the Lord and place it on the cart and put it in a box as it, at its sides, the figures of gold, which you're returning to him as a guilt offering. Then send it off and let it go its way and watch if it goes up on the way to its own land, to Beth Shemesh, then it is he who has done this great harm. But if not, then we shall know that this is not his hand that struck us. It happened to us by coincidence. The men did so and took two milk cows and yoked them to the cart and shut up their calves at home. And they put the ark of the Lord on the cart and the box with the golden mice and the images of their tumors. And the cows went straight in the direction of Beth Shemesh along one highway, lowing as they went. They turned neither to the right nor to the left. And the Lord of the Philistines went after them as far as the border of Beth Shemesh. Now, if this was the first portion of God's word that you've ever read, and you just happen to be in this service, you're listening to me over the course of the waves of the air, and this is your introduction to the word of God, you're like, that's kind of strange. That's a little weird. What's going on? What's this all about? And so it may be helpful for us to review a few things, uh, whether you have been going with us through the book of 1 Samuel or whether it's completely new to you or somewhere in between. But let's first of all think about a grand theme of God's word. Uh, obviously, we think about the, the idea of salvation and redemption, but that is only the means to something that is much greater as far as the theme of God's word, and that is God dwelling with his people. From the very beginning, God created two people. He dwelt with them, and because of sin, fellowship was broken, and they were no longer able to dwell in the garden alone with him, and there was sacrifices needed. And so we see throughout the course of God's word from Genesis all the way to the book of Revelation, we see how God is at work bringing his people back into fellowship with him. And there's different ways in which he pictures this throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament. Now, first of all, obviously, we have the Garden of Eden. That was where the perfection was existing uh, with the innocence of man and woman uh, in God's creation. Everything was good and God walked with them right? Sin came into the picture. God, throughout the course of history, called a nation into himself, and this nation that he called into himself had them brought into a land of slavery in Egypt so that he could do what? Redeem them and bring them out, showing them what he would ultimately do through the seed of Eve that he promised way back in Genesis chapter 3 in order to do what? Restore the fellowship back with his people. Now, as these people, as Pastor Charlie made mention, we have been doing an extensive study throughout the book of Exodus. We could just almost call us Exodus Baptist Church instead of Cornerstone Baptist Church because we are so familiar with the book of Exodus. 
But the book of Exodus is really important for us to understand that this is a picture of how God works in his people, bringing them out of slavery from, to the, their sin and to the world and bringing them into servanthood to himself. And throughout the course of God developing his people, he engages with them. He doesn't wait for them to, to figure out a way to get to him because he knows that's not possible. And throughout the course of the book of Exodus, and even re really through the, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, we see God bringing his people through, but he doesn't leave them without a picture of his presence. You know, God gave Moses instruction after he gave him the Ten Commandments and, and, and other parts of the law. He gave him a lot of ceremonial law and a lot of instruction about how to worship. And he gave them instruction about how to build things that would picture, including the tabernacle. This, this tent, this, this place that while they were going through the wilderness was temporary. And within this tabernacle, there was a tent that had its own special place that no one else could go except for one priest. And within this place called the Holy of Holies. In this Holy of Holies, there was this box that was created and covered with gold. So many different ways in which we could describe it. We won't take time to do that here. But that box, within, its, within the box carried the, the tablets, the, the Ten Commandments, and it, and it carried with them some of the manna that they collected through the wilderness. But what this box did more than anything else, it represented the innermost place of God's presence. Now, God wasn't limited to this box. Please understand that if you haven't already. But this box, which they were to take great care of, they couldn't even touch it. As a matter of fact, it was made with rings so that you could put poles through it and carry it indirectly. And that is how much they were to reverence this very materialistic representation of God's presence. Because God's presence is a holy thing. When we speak of God's glory, we don't speak of it flippantly. If you're speaking flippantly, you're not talking about God's glory. If you're not speaking in terms of reverence, you're speaking about something else. And so when we think about the presence of God being reflected in the Ark of the Testimony, which it was called that in a number of occasions in the Old Testament because, again, it carried the Ten Commandments that Moses had recorded. Or the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, this was the center of the sanctuary. This was the Holy of Holies. This, and it was even covered by a mercy seat, which even in and of itself was an indication that even that could only be appreciated through the mercy of God. So this Ark of the Covenant that we see in the book of 1 Samuel was significant back in chapter 1 where it resided in the place where the worship took place in Israel. And so we see that it resided in the temple in chapter 3, Verse 3 in chapter 4, uh, the Israelites thought that they could uh, get, gain some momentum in their war against the Philistines. And they so they, you know, let's take this Ark of the Covenant and let's take it with us to the battlefield and that will surely give us victory. Well, unfortunately for them, it did not. And the Philistines captured the Ark of the Covenant. They brought it into their temple of other gods, particularly the god of Dagon in chapter 5. And so here we have it. Chapter 6, the Philistines, as it says in verse 1 of chapter 6, 
the, the ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines for seven months. And what was taking place over these seven months? Well, Tim did a great job in painting a very vivid picture about what was happening in the, in the land of Philistine because of this ark of the covenant being where it should not have been. Again, this box that was representing the holy glory of God had taken its toll. The, the Philistines were experiencing a plague, as it were, in their own body. First Samuel chapter 6 even goes further into saying not only were they experiencing tumors, but they were also experiencing apparently uh, uh, an infestation of rats. Now, again, this is not one of the situations where you will pick your poison, which would you rather have, these tumors or where they have a bunch of rats infesting everything? Well, you know, I don't want either one. And the Philistines for seven months had come to the conclusion that they didn't want it either. And so they went to their priests. They went to the, the diviners, the, the magicians of their day, the ones who were able to provide all this spiritual leadership for them. And they said, what in the world should we do? This ark of the Lord is creating havoc for us. And so they had this really interesting plan that, Again, this is where it's very difficult for us when we go through historic passages of Scripture. We certainly want to be careful that we don't make narratives normal for us because when was the last time that you had this situation come up in your life? Probably never. Hopefully you never will, even though you may have experienced some things you'd like to get rid of as much as the tumors and the mice. But it's not necessarily because you have the Ark of the Covenant in your living room where it doesn't belong. However, in this situation, they came up with a plan to, well, let's get us a cart. We're, we're going to get rid of it. We're going to get rid of this thing uh, that represents God. We're going to put it, in, and they have very specific instructions about how they were going to take two milk. Now, why would milk cows make something good to carry uh, that had never been? I have no idea. It doesn't really matter. We're, we're not going to gain any sort of wisdom from these priests and diviners about how we live our life. So how they come up with a plan to get rid of it, it doesn't really matter to us, right? It just, it just is very clear that they wanted it out. And they wanted to do it in such a way where they didn't have to touch it, that they could just send these two poor cows that were, you know, just mooing on their way down the road, carrying the Ark of the Covenant. And hopefully, if it goes this direction, then we know that we did the right thing. If it goes this direction, then we just going to, just coincidence. And in, 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 in a very interesting way, this sounds so much like the world in which we live. Now, again, I want to be very careful about practical applications that I make from a historical passage in a narrative from the Word of God. But let's make some observations here. Now, again, they took this box that they thought would bring them magic power. We know that because they set it in this room with all these other idols that they thought brought them magic power. Now, just like the world, when there is something that represents God's word and everything else around it falls apart, they get rid of the thing that doesn't fall apart. 
They were more than happy to keep their statue of Dagon, even though he no longer had a torso or didn't have any arms left. Everything had been broken off of him when he fell. Now, again, in just using common sense, you think, well, maybe that's what I need to get rid of. Maybe I need to get rid of all this other stuff that is useless, just a stone idol. The world doesn't do that. The world, and even in the culture in which we live, that hanging on by a thread still has some understanding about the God of the Bible. There are certain tenets and there are certain qualities that come through the values and the teachings of God's Word that really even the person who has no spiritual understanding can understand that there have been certain things brought into this world as a result of the influence of God's Word. Now, it's not sufficient by any stretch of the imagination, but the person who sees, again, it's almost generational because of the way we have what? Gotten rid of the presence of God in everyday life. We've gotten to the point where the world can even see that there's some benefit, that there are some people who walk with God and there are blessings in their life. And when they, they seem to somehow just incorporate it into their life, right? I'm not going to change. I'm not going to become a Christian. But you know what? There's some pretty good things over there that that church had at that seminar. Or there might be a book over here that was written by a Christian. And they make some sense. So I'm just going to kind of incorporate that into my life. No man like that? I got family members like that. I got people I work with like that. I got people that live up the road like that. I got people that went to school with it's like that, that all they do is just try to incorporate little pieces of God into their life. And when everything else falls apart, when they try to do that, guess what? They don't get rid of God and they don't pursue God anymore. They just get rid of God. Well, I like my life the way it was before. And the Philistines did the same thing. Now, again, in verse 6, it's interesting to note that, that their understanding of who God wasn't completely off mark. They understood the God of the Hebrews was the one that Pharaoh and the Egyptians eventually said the same thing. Well, let's not have a spiritual awakening here in, in, in Egypt, and let's all become followers of the true God, Yahweh. Let's get rid of them. And so the diviners and the priests here in Philistia were like, why do we want to be like them? Let's not be stubborn uh, like the Pharaohs were at the beginning, but let's do like him and maybe God will leave us alone too. And that's a sad state of our world. Regardless of how, and, I, and again, I'm using this term very, very carefully because it, it is not sufficient, but even though they see the benefit of God, they would rather have their sin. They would rather have the world. Now, again, they acknowledged this God being powerful. They acknowledged this God being real. But they were just in incapable of, of being able to relate to it properly. They, they didn't understand who God is. And perhaps if you're listening to this, again, however you're hearing my voice, if you're hearing this and you find yourself as impotent 
as if the Philistines were in dealing with incorporating God into your life, if I could use that term. Keep listening. Gets better. But this is a futile effort the Philistines had to relate to God. And this is, and it reflects the same sort of futile effort that the world that simply tries to incorporate God into their coexist bumper sticker. You can't. It's either him or nothing. It's not him or another God. It's not him or something else that works. It's either him or nothing. The Philistines chose, let's get rid of it. We would rather have nothing. Now, as we continue our reading in verse 13, now the people, now again, we know chapter five, and we've read already the first 12 verses of chapter 12, or chapter six. Now we come to verse 13, and, the, and the, now those poor people in Beth Shemesh, they were, they were just simply working. They were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley. And when they lifted up their eyes and saw the ark. Again, they may not have known what was going on with the previous seven months. But they rejoiced to see it. Because there were still individuals of the people of Israel. Living in their homeland that recognized the Ark of the Covenant. They, they rejoiced when they saw it. The, car, the, the cart came into the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh and stopped there. A great stone was there and they split up the wood of the cart and offered the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord and the Levites. Again, Levites are important because those are the ones that God had assigned the task of ministering for the people. This is actually starting to look like a, like a good scene, right? The people of Israel see the Ark of the Covenant coming back into the land where it belonged. The priests are actually, the Levites are getting active, doing what they're supposed to do. They took down the Ark of the Lord in the box that was cited, in which were golden figures, and set them on a, upon the great stone. And the men of Beth Shemesh offered burnt offerings and, sacri and sacrificed sacrifices on that day to the Lord. There's hope. These are some individuals who, who sort of get it. They have an idea of what they're supposed to be doing. And the Philistines, when they saw it, they returned that day to Ekron. These are the golden tumors that the Philistines returned as a guilt offering to the Lord. One for Ashdod, one for Gaza, one for Ashkelon, one for Gath, and one for Ekron. And the golden mice, according to the number of all the cities of the Philistines belonging to the five lords, both certified cities and unwalled villages. Great stone beside which they sat down the ark of the Lord is a witness to this day in the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh. So the Philistines were happy. We got rid of this thing. It's not bothering. Apparently it wasn't bothering them anymore. We don't have any specific word about that. So the people of Israel seem to be on the right track. The Philistines seem to be happy with their choice. But verse 19. And he, speaking of God, the Lord, struck some of the men of Beth Shemesh 
pay really close attention to this. Because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. What? The ark of the Lord was back where it was supposed to be. The the Levites were were handling it and, and taking care of the sacrifices. And here we got more people being struck. Why? Because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. Now this word for look can have a lot of different applications. So I'm not going to even dare speculate as to, well, this is the point I want to make. So this is what this word means. But it simply means to gaze. And guess what? The one thing that the Ark of the Covenant was not made to do was to be gazed upon. Why? Because it represented the holiness of God. It represented the glory of God. It represented the presence of God. And for man in his sinfulness to get just to stare at it, God took very seriously. Wow, I've always heard all those people saying that the Old Testament God was really mean and nasty. No, the God of the Old Testament is just like the God of the New Testament. He is holy and righteous. And we can't just simply flippantly say, oh, the Ark of the Covenant, let's all stand around and amaze. No, that's not what it was for. The Ark of the Covenant was intended to be hidden behind a curtain in a smaller tent. It wasn't for everybody else's pleasure just to go, oh, wow, that is some really fine gold that we covered that thing there with. And boy, those cherubim on the both sides of the mercy seat, man, that is excellent artwork. No, it wasn't a museum piece. And this is the reason why the message today that's on my heart weighs heavy on me. Now, in this situation, verse 19, he struck 70 men. There were nearly 15,000 men in this area, and he struck 70 of them. And the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a great blow. And the men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? Do you ever ask that question? Who? Who can stand before the Lord, this holy God? If he strikes 70 men simply because they look at a box, who can stand before this God? Who? So they sent messengers in, 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 to the inhabitants of Kiriath Jerem, saying, The Philistines have returned the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up to you. We're not bringing it to you. But you come and get it. And the men in chapter 7, verse 1. The men of Kiriath-Jerim came and took up the ark of the Lord and brought it to the house of Abinadab on the hill. And they consecrated his son Eleazar to have charge of the ark of the Lord. Do you notice what they did not do? 
They didn't find a nice big flat rock and say, you know, this is where we're going to set the Ark of the Covenant, and we're going to look at it for a little while. Or they didn't go out and take volunteers and say, anybody want to go get and take care of this Ark? No, they took somebody who was appointed to do so. Now, we won't talk about this this morning, and Pastor Charlie, Lord willing, will bring something out about this from verse 2 of chapter 7. But the people, as a result of this, they lamented after the Lord. It doesn't mean that they felt sorry for the Lord. What it meant is they realized of what grave sin that they had been a part of. And for 20 years, they would do so. So even the Hebrews, the Philistines are like the world. They have no spiritual understanding. We can understand why they would do what they did. Just let's just get rid of the presence of God. We don't want any semblance of the God of Israel. Yahweh is not our God. Just get rid of it. We can understand that. But the people of his, the Hebrews, the people of Israel, well, they had an idea. They knew who God was. They knew to some extent what to do. But they were, they were and I want to use a word that should never, ever be used of the Christian's relationship with God, and that they were casual. They were comfortable. They didn't take it seriously. Their attitudes obviously were not the right place. The way they approached this ark of the covenant that represented the holiness of God, they did not consider it to be as God intended it to be. And believers today may understand how to relate to God today, but they may not regard him as holy. They might not see God as being set apart from us. Now, again, we have to be real careful with this because, again, as we ask the question, who can stand before the Lord, this holy God? When we ask that question, thankfully, we've got an answer to that. Thankfully, we've got a pastor who's been teaching faithfully through the book of Galatians, which is just one book of many passages that speak clearly of the gospel that we enjoy that we as god's people having been redeemed by the blood of jesus christ shed on the cross as a payment for our sin so that as it is applied to us we thank god no longer bear the wrath of god that our unrighteousness was laid upon his shoulders. His righteousness was given to us as a robe to wear so that we are now made the righteousness of God in Christ. We can boldly go before the throne of grace and obtain mercy and grace in our time of need, but we do not approach the throne of grace arrogantly. We don't approach the throne of grace as if God now owes us something because we're a child of God. We do not approach the throne of grace as if we're going to some counselor or therapist or doctor. We still approach the throne of grace, understanding that in doing so, we're recognizing our need for grace and mercy. 
We're not doing there because we're equal with God. We don't have the mind of Christ as he did not think it robbery to be equal with God. Well, I don't think it's robbery to be equal with God either. Wrong. We still approach the throne of grace reverently. We do so understanding that it's only by God's grace. Now we do so with confidence. We do so with boldness because what Jesus Christ did is sufficient. There's nothing that we can do to improve our standing before God, the righteous judge. However, as a demonstration of that being changed will come a reverence for God that he will continue to bring about. Because again, we're not worshiping a God in a box. As the psalmist said in Psalm 139, verse 7 and following, where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol or the grave, you are there. If I take wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. There is no place when you can escape God's presence. And amazingly, he is everywhere without being limited to anything. Acts chapter 17, Paul tells those uh, debating on Mars Hill, said the God who made the world of everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by earthly hands, by man. So we, we have to relate to this God just as the Philistines were in a, in a quandary. The Hebrews were in a quandary. Everybody on the face of this planet who has ever lived, regardless of when, has this quandary. How do we relate to this God? And again, the most important thing that we can take away from this time together is to understand the only way we can relate to this God is to submit to him, repenting of our sin, and coming to him in saving faith, trusting that what he did on the cross was sufficient. Not just necessary, but just sufficient to settle my account with God. Past, present, future, for all time. I'm now a child of God. I'm righteous in Christ. That is number one. But until that day, is it legalistic to talk about being holy? Is it too demanding that we start anticipating a change in the way we live, in the way we think, in the way we act? Are we concerned that that might become a works-based salvation, that it's somehow anti-gospel if we start talking about a holy life, a holy mind, a holy heart, a holy attitude before God? I get it. There is the temptation that at this point of our life, as a believer in Jesus Christ, if we have gotten to that point where he has saved us, he has called us, he has redeemed us, I know the temptation. Get out the piece of paper, figuratively speaking, start making a list. These are things I can't do. These are things I have to do. These are things I can't think about. These are places I can't go. And then we start making this list and then we can become very legalistic because our flesh try to step up to the plate. And while it is a wonderful thing 
for me to no longer go to this place of sin, my flesh said, you know what, Mark, I can handle this. We just won't go to that place. You don't have to worry about praying about it. You don't have to worry about getting a deeper relationship with God about it. You know what? You can, you and your own will, you can just say, I'm not going to that place anymore in your flesh. And then guess what? You win. You get the glory. And God is not honored at all by your wonderful choice to never go into this place of sin any longer. Or if you've got this habit, you know, I'm not going to do this habit anymore. I'm not going to lie. I'm not going to cheat. I'm not going to look at the computer anymore with those lustful thoughts. I'm not going to sit here and gossip about people. All these types of things. All of that stuff, to a certain extent, your willpower can take over. And then it becomes a work of the flesh. And you disregard your relationship with God in the process of living a holy life. Because all of those things primarily are going to lead you into further sin if, it, if it's not sin itself. But again, let's not run to the other extreme. Well, my standing before God is, is sure. Uh, I'm not going to lose my salvation uh, because God has called me. He has made me righteous for Christ. So does it really matter how I live the rest of my life? I'll try. I'll look good on Sundays. I'll make sure people don't hear me say these things anymore. I make sure that when, if I do, before I get out of my car in the parking lot, before I go into that place, I'll just make sure that nobody from church is there. But, but then even if they do, I'm just a sinner. Are they going to judge me because I'm doing something that's wrong? How dare they do that? Because I'm just a sinner. I'm still struggling with the flesh. The things that I don't want to do, I do. And the things I do want to do, I don't do. And so we use that as a crutch. It's a real struggle. <laughs> if the Apostle Paul struggled with it, I have no doubt that the rest of us are always, as believers, struggling with it. But it's not a crutch. We should be pursuing a life of holiness. Now you're starting to understand perhaps maybe the weightiness of this on my soul. Because I didn't just start thinking, you know, I was looking for alternative approaches to this passage of scripture. I was looking for maybe something that wouldn't be quite so needed. But how shall we stand before the Lord, this holy God? Sure, we do it in Christ, but how do we live? Well, I mentioned earlier that we would look to the book of Hebrews for maybe some assistance. And since it's not three o'clock yet, I think we have plenty of time. Okay, two o'clock. I'll give you an hour. I'll give you an hour. Now, don't forget what I told you at the beginning. The reason why we have those things which were written beforehand were written for our instruction, so that through the teaching of the scriptures that we might have hope. Well, Hebrews chapter 12, you're very familiar with, I'm sure, if you spend any time in the, in the scriptures at all, you understand that it's speaking about Christ being the author and finisher of our faith, and we should consider him. Verse 3, for considering him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin, and you have forgotten the exhortation which is, the, which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. 
nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For, for what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you're left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they discipline for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good. That we may share his holiness. There's a purpose for the discipline. When your father or your mother disciplined you as a child, <laughs> the last thing they probably had on their mind was for you to share in their holiness. But it was for your good. But when God, the Father, disciplines his children, he does so for their own good that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. How important is it for you to see the Lord? Do you wake up every morning and say, I long to walk with God today. I, I long for the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. I long for his word. That is looking for the Lord, but ultimately we look for the Lord. How? And I can promise you, brothers and sisters, every day, just like many of you have done so for longer than me, I'm more and more ready. Even so, Lord Jesus, quickly come. I am so ready to see the Lord. But you notice what the writer of Hebrews says here? We must be striving for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. We must be holy people. Now again, that begins where? With Christ on the cross, paying for my sin, removing the wrath of God off of my life. But how does that continue until I see him? A life of holiness. A life of holiness is only going to be enabled by his grace. See to it, verse 15. Back to Hebrews chapter 12, verse 15. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. Hmm? See, that's, that's really important. When we start talking about holiness, make sure. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, that by, and by many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, when he desired to see the Lord, he was rejected. That doesn't mean that we're going to lose our salvation. That doesn't mean that Esau is not going to, lost his salvation. It just meant that Esau was never saved from the very beginning. 
For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Now, I know we speak greatly of the grace of God. We speak wonderfully of the kindness and the mercy of our Lord. But there is nothing in the scriptures that I find. If there is something there, I'm not sure I want you to show me, but if it's there, please show me. But there is nothing in the scriptures as I find them that ever tells us, you know what, you can, now that you're in the New Testament, you can sort of light up on that holiness stuff. You know, now that, that we're in the church age, uh, now that we're in this temple of this dispensation of grace, now that we're in this period after the cross, you don't have to be all that holy. Come on now. People are going to think you're self-righteous. People are going to think you're too good for them. People are going to think you're too highly minded and heavily minded to be any earthly good. I don't see any indication in Jesus' life. I don't see anything in the letters of Paul. I don't see anything in the book of Revelation. I don't see anything in the letters of Peter or Jude or the letters to Timothy. I don't see anything in the book of Acts. I don't see anything in the Gospels that would indicate to me that now somehow because we're believers in Christ that we don't need to be holy anymore. We don't need to be legalists, nor do we need to be licentious, King James Word. But we have been called to be holy because I am holy, says the Lord. There's no reduction. We just understand we can't get it ourselves. We just understand as believers in Jesus Christ that it's by grace and grace alone that we become holy. But if there is no holiness there, if there's no pursuit of holiness, then we're misunderstanding Hebrews chapter 12 in which God is disciplining his children for the very purpose to share in his holiness. Right? I'm not making this up. It's, it's right here. And, how the, and if we think somehow that in the church age that God acts differently with his people, just go back to Acts chapter 5. You may recall a certain couple named Ananias and Sapphira. They were church members. I believe that they were Christians. But I believe they sinned against God. Why? Because they didn't give? Nope. Not because they didn't give enough? Nope. But because they lied about what they gave. And what happened to them? They had a funeral service right after the church service because God took lying to the Holy Spirit very seriously. But that's not the only one. You might recall from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, the reason why Paul tells us to take inventory to, to consider and to, and to go before the Lord's Supper is because what? He says, Paul says it, that there were people who were sick. Why? Because they took the cup and ate of the bread in an unworthy manner. Do you think God is serious about this? Now let's be careful because there are a number of different biblical reasons why people go through times of suffering and times of, of hardship. The easiest reason we can think of, the reason why we experience so much hardship in this world, is because this world is cursed, right? 
We live in a fallen world. We're fallen people, living with fallen people, with fallen stuff. It's all broken. And until Jesus comes and makes all things new, it's going to be that way. And that's the reason why some of us are. Sometimes it's to, to gain control. God gaining control. You remember Paul? Second Corinthians, he tells the church that he had a thorn in the flesh. Where did that thorn in the flesh come from? It came from God. Why did God give it to him? So that God could keep him humble. God, Paul asked God to, three times. He asked him to remove it. And, and what did God say? My strength or my grace is going to be sufficient for you because in your weakness you will find my strength through Christ. So sometimes we go through hardships that way. Sometimes it's just simply the consequences of making stupid choices. If I decide to walk across the street at any given point based on what I think is proper, I may face the consequences of another truck or a car coming in a, in a way that's going to end my life very soon. I can't do anything about those consequences. It's going to happen. They might not always happen, but I'm subject to them. But this last thing is the correction. And the whole body of work of the scriptures, particularly in the Old Testament, we see how God continually corrects his people down the road continually. And why does God do that? Why does he not just wipe them out? Why does God not just start over with a bunch of people who will actually do the right thing? Because he knows that the way to bring people to share into his holiness is to discipline them like a father. But let's not get to the point where we're saying, well, you know, I woke up with a backache today, so apparently I must have done something wrong yesterday. Let me repent of my sin and somehow get this all taken care of because that's the only way my back's going to feel better. Or you can be even more secular and worldly and say, my baseball team hasn't won in the last three weeks, so apparently I'm doing something wrong. So if I just start living right, then my team will start winning. Or if I, you know, if I get a raise because I do this or that, and we start working ourselves in a friendly, trying to figure out, now, now what is it? How can I fix it? Uh, th that's not a pursuit of holiness. A pursuit of holiness is following after God to the point that regardless of what you go through, you can understand what uh, Arthur, Arthur Pink said in our little quote in CGG this morning, that when God sends that stuff, he sends it with joy. Paul even says that. Of course, I, I think Pink would even submit to Paul being a, a higher uh, power here. But in chapter 5 of Romans, what does Paul say? That you are going to go through suffering and that suffering is going to produce endurance and that endurance is going to produce character and that character is going to produce what hope the correction that god brings into our life you say well well it must be a consequence it must be just the fallen world because i don't think i'm doing anything that god needs to correct <laughs> Uh-huh, and, you, and you're going to be like those folks that are over there gazing at the Ark of the Covenant when they bring it back into the lands there. Oh, wow, that's a pretty box. Whoops, now I'm plagued. Now, I'm speaking lightly here, but you do understand, please understand the, 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 the seriousness of this. So when we think of our worship, when we come into this place, I'm guilty of this as much as anybody. What preparation am I making? I mean, I, make, I have made better preparation going into a job interview than I most of the time come into a place of worship with God's people. 
Oh, that's okay. I'm a sinner. Don't expect so much from me. No, really? And we've got music that's kind of geared to making us think about God. We've got, we go through a lot of work to structure a service so that we can give our attention. But we show better respect in a, in a movie theater or a baseball game. But that's not what worship is. And that doesn't mean that we come in all with our hands up and we look like a bunch of monks coming in with their heads shaved on top. What that means is we just understand that there is a, an aspect of God's holiness that we can't afford to be flippant about. They say, well, we've never done that before. We seem to have gotten all right before. We, we haven't had any of those you know, tumors show up. Do you really want it to get to that? Do you think God is beyond doing that? I'm really not looking forward to the day when God gives me a better understanding about my whole life to understand just how much of my life was him trying to get my attention and to correct me through the tribulations that I've experienced. It's not going to be a pretty picture, but thankfully God's grace is working all things together for good because I'm called by him and I'm according to his purpose and I'm loved by him. But not just in our worship life, but what are our personal life? Do you not know that you're God's temple? And that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. He's not talking to unbelievers there because unbelievers don't have the Holy Spirit dwelling in them. For God's temple is holy. And you are that temple. Finally, brothers, when we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that you have received from us how you ought to walk and to please God just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passions of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, or those Philistines who just sent it away on a cart. Since all these things in heaven are thus to be dissolved on the day of the Lord, what sort of people ought you be in lives of holiness and godliness? In Christ, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. How do we relate to God? Are we pursuing holiness? Are we trying to do so in our own strength? Or are we still like the Philistines, just it's easier to get rid of God than it is for me to change my life? Would you bow your heads? And as I pray, and as you reflect upon the word, not, not me, not my silliness, not my speaking style, not my suit and tie, as you focus 
on the word of God. How will you stand before the Lord, this holy God? Father, help us as we take just a moment. May your spirit working in the hearts of your people draw us to conclusions that are needful today. Perhaps it's the repentance of unholy things in our life, things that we watch, places we go, people that we're around. Not so that we could be saved, but because we want to be holy. And may we not do so in our strength, but help us, Lord. May your spirit take your word, apply it to our lives for your glory as we continue to meditate on your word.